Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. I read a February 28, 2009 article in The Lancet titled, Enjoying and Enduring, Groups Read Aloud for Well-Being by Jane Davis. The author, who is a part of the reader organization in England, says, Our hypothesis is that reading literature aloud with others offers something uniquely valuable. It facilitates the creation of a series of powerful interplays between the written text and the oral experience, between hearing the text from outside and processing it within, between one's own experience and that of the author and the characters, between the privacy of personal consciousness and the public experience of group. For by reading aloud in a group, it may be that readers experience what we might call interpersonality, both with the book and its authors and characters, and with other group members. To see oneself in others, to see others in oneself, this is the rich experience going on within the group and with the book. Jewish and Christian scripture has always been among the world's great literature. And as I said in my blog spot with Drew Willard, from the time of Moses, the public reading of Scripture has been and continues to be an integral and essential part of Jewish worship. Because Christianity arose within Judaism, that practice carried over. So from its beginning, Christianity has read Scripture aloud in its worship. What I love about biblical storytelling is that it is a fusion of the reading aloud of Scripture and the creative, imaginative art of storytelling. Having the Scripture told enlivens its meanings and the encounter with it in ways that having Scripture read does not. Those skilled in the art of biblical storytelling not only enable it to be art, but also ministry. To me, ministry is what happened when people are enabled to encounter and experience God. One who enables biblical storytelling to be both art and ministry is my guest today. Kathy Colmer is an author, speaker, teacher, Christian educator, and a professional storyteller. She has a bachelor's and master's in English and a doctor of ministry in biblical storytelling. In addition to having some of her stories published, Kathy has told her stories in universities and at storytelling festivals across the country. You're going to enjoy this. Well, welcome, Kathy. Thank you for being with me here today. Great to be here. And you are here to tell us some wonderful stories. So yeah. let's just jump right into that uh, and let you do that for us. All right. Here's one of my favorite, David, that I'd like to share with you. But let me just start out with a little bit, just kind of an intro to it, because this is uh, this is the way that I tell it. And there's a little song. There's a song that uh, when I grew, I grew up in the Baptist church, and uh, I like Baptist. I, 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 I was a Sunday school piano player. Now I couldn't play that well, but I was a Sunday school <laughs> piano player. Yeah. And there was a song that we used to sing from time to time, and it had this refrain in it that went like this. He who say he will 
He will save you. He will save you just now. Just now. He will save you. He will save you just now. Now King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold that was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image of gold that he had set up. So all the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples of every nation and language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must bow down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, all the peoples of every nation and language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, at this time, some Chaldeans or astrologers came forward to accuse the Hebrews whom King Nebuchadnezzar had set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, <laughs> live forever. King, you have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must bow down and worship the image of gold that you have set up. And whoever does not bow down and worship the image of gold will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Now, there are some Hebrews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Furious with rage, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before him. King Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you neither serve my gods nor worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to bow down and worship the image, then very good. But if you do not, you will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Then what God is able to rescue you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, 
O Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. King Nebuchadnezzar was so furious that his face became contorted and his attitude changed towards them. He ordered the furnace be heated up seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes and their trousers, their turbans, and other clothes, were thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent, and the fire was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these men, firmly bound, fell into the blaze. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and he asked his advisors weren't there, weren't there three men that we found and threw into the blazing furnace? And they answered, certainly, O king. And he said, look, I, I see four men walking around in the furnace unbound and unharmed and of the fourth is like the son of the government of the gods. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made his way towards furnace. And he shouted out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out from here. came out of the blazing furnace and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors all crowded around them and they saw for themselves that, that their bodies were not burned, that, that the hair on their heads was not scorched, that their clothes were not singed. <laughs> And there wasn't even <laughs> the smell of smoke on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for he sent his servants, his angels, to rescue them. They were, they defied the king's decree. And they were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any other 
God and their own. Therefore I decree that the peoples of every nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be choked up into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble. For no other God is able to rescue in this way. And then <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you just now. Just now. He will save you. He will save you just now. You are one of the reasons why I love this art form. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank and one you. of the things I regret about doing this on a podcast is that the audience doesn't get to see your facial expressions and the bodily movements that you made to enhance mm. what you just said. Mm. Uh, but it's still, uh, <laughs> you did wonderful in coming across to just an oral medium. Thank uh, you. A, yeah, thank you for that. Well, so now why this story? What about this story that drew you and that wanted to make you tell this one? You know, David, there are, I say there are, there are a lot of stories that I tell, but then there are those stories that tell me. And I don't have to tell you or anyone listening that this has been a challenging year, but this story that always it always gives me that hope. It always gives me that reassurance that no matter what we are going through, that there is a, a, a positive outcome that awaits us. Those of us who put our trust in this living God who is willing to come and rescue us from whatever those circumstances are. And, and, and the faith of those young men who were in that fire, who said, now we acknowledge that our God can do this, but even if he does not, we trust him even then to know that he will work whatever the situation is for our good. So it's been a story that has been telling me off and on throughout this season this year. And uh, that's why I wanted to share. And one other reason I tell you that, that really finalized it for me uh, in preparation for this, I was, as I was thinking about telling this story, sharing it with you, I do this thing on my Facebook page where I write these words of encouragement daily. And from time to time, I will tell a story on there and uh, post myself telling, telling the story. And I did that with this story. And if, if, if there's time enough, the, the second story that I'll share with you, I put them both on this video that I posted earlier this week. And there is a, a member of my church who is, is part of my Facebook community as well, who I guess had been going through some difficult times. He lost his wife earlier this year, and uh, it had just been her birthday and his birthday. 
And he came across that video recording of my telling this story. And it did so much to encourage him that he called the priest of our church and told him that this had really changed the course of his day. And because it so it, it sort of confirmed for me what I believe about the power of story and the power of telling God's word aloud is that all we do is just kind of put it out there because that's all I did. I just I, I recorded it posted it on my Facebook page and just left it there. And he found his way to it. And he's not even somebody who is on there that often, but he found his way to it. And, and the story had a healing power for him. And so that's why I share that story. That's why I let it tell me and why I let it tell itself to others. Well, so how did you get into storytelling in general uh, and then biblical storytelling in particular? Uh, and it did kind of happen that way because I've been storytelling. I started storytelling, I guess, in a formal way back in the early 90s. And I was doing a lot of folk telling then. But I was, I really got my start in the church being kind of this narrator person and reading always and relying always upon a script. So the storytelling sort of happened in my life. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that I had spent some time, we spent some time living in, in Minnesota. And uh, so during those cold lockdown times, you find lots of ways to amuse yourself. <laughs> and so I, because I had done, you know, again, this narrator kind of talking, and I had a friend who was a children's librarian and a storyteller, because quite frankly, I didn't even know anybody who was a storyteller before then or know that people did that. Other than I, I later came to realize that's what my mother had always done, this mm, storytelling. Mm. But it was such a natural part of who she was and what she did and how she interacted with people that I didn't recognize it as something other than that. Right. But I was invited my, by this friend to become a part of a group. So I started out group telling. And then when I left Minnesota and went to Indiana, uh, that's when I really started to, to do storytelling on my own. But for a while, I also performed with a group there as well. And I remember when my husband got his, uh, got his reassignment to Houston, and I remember just kind of saying to, to God, because again, those other two places, I really didn't know anything about storytelling when I left, it, when I moved there. And as I was preparing to come here and I said, okay, God, I'm ready now to see what you're going to do with this storytelling thing. And interestingly enough, it was here that I learned about biblical storytelling. And it was, it was like, that was the missing link. That was the piece that was missing for me. And uh, I find that telling the stories of the Bible, many of which were transmitted orally anyhow, is very much like telling folk tales. And I also find that among certain people, the themes that are told about in the folk tales uh, sort of parallel the themes of the biblical stories as well. In fact, that's, that's one, of the way that, one of the ways that I tell biblical stories sometimes, that is by pairing them up with a folk tale or a personal story. That kind of, and I borrow this term from uh, Donald Davis, the storyteller Donald Davis, who says that they parallel, they are parallel stories and their themes kind of reflect off of one another. 
enhancing the meaning or clarifying the meaning or somehow helping us to get a greater understanding of that message. You have two degrees in, in English. How did, yeah. how did all that, how did you get into, uh, you know, in being interested in English to begin with? And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and then how does that kind of play into developing your well, it's, it's almost like, David, I just kind of, everything that's happened in my life, I just kind of stumbled into it. But I really, I grew up thinking I was going to be this uh, news uh, a journalist. I was going to be a news anchor. So that was, but I went to a liberal arts college that did not have a program in journalism. And so the closest I could come to it was this degree in English. And uh, as a result, didn't have journalism. I thought it would. It well, it didn't at the time. But Spelman was part of the Atlanta University Center. And before I graduated, so it was at that time a complex of about six schools there together, and we could take classes at these other campuses as well. Oh. Well, before okay. I graduated from Spelman, Clark at Clark at it was Clark College at that time. Now it's Clark Atlanta University. But they started a journalism program, and I was able to take some courses there, so enough to, to give me a little credibility that when I started out in the world of work, I started out as an English teacher, but then I had a part-time job at a radio station, or i do a, some writing for a newspaper. So I did those kind of journalistic side jobs. They were my side people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, now... Um... When I when I interviewed with Donna Marie, uh, yes. I asked about uh, how much you actually quote verbatim mm -hmm. and how much you add on. Mm -hmm. And I know that it's different. You know, each each storyteller has a different opinion and, and, and does it differently. She said that for her, it's like 70, 30, mm -hmm. uh, where she tries to, you know, actually quote 70 percent of the scripture that she's telling. Mm -hmm. uh, with a 30% uh, addition. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. how about for you? How does that, how does the, uh, difference play into there about, you know, what we're hearing is actual quotes and how much of it's the additions. Uh, and Donna Marie and I come from the same organization, the network of biblical storytellers, and that is what they promote. They promote the 95%, um, content accuracy, but 70% perhaps. Uh, in the word accuracy. Uh, what I say, I stick pretty close to the script when I'm telling these stories because, um, yes, I stick pretty close to the script. Now, what I will do is I will use different translations so that I can, as I, as I borrow another term, I borrow from a friend storyteller that says, I have to get words in there that fit my mouth. And some translations of the Bible don't necessarily, they, they, are, they aren't as friendly for speaking the words as they are for reading them. So I may have some, uh, I may start to have as my basic guide, whether it's NRSV or NIV, but then I may also look at some other translations that I feel not only fit my mouth, but that, uh, you know, communicate the message in a way that people might more readily receive. So I try what I said in the in that Daniel, I mean the Daniel three story was pretty close to script. Again, I may have uh, added a, a kind of mixing translations in there, but it's pretty close to script. 
Okay. Because mm-hmm. one of the things I was wondering about, um, how much are you, or do you all um, explore the ramifications of what goes unsaid? Mm. Like, for instance, um, with Abraham or with Moses, mm-hmm. um, after they had their event, mm-hmm. however that event was for Abraham, mm-hmm. uh, God appears to him and says, leave your father and mother and go, uh, mm-hmm. and then Moses at the burning bush. Mm-hmm. Um the conversation that happened at home that night in the tent, <laughs> you know, when their wives said, Hey honey, how was your day? Uh, is that something that, that you all include sometimes? There are or- some tellers. There are some tellers who do that. Uh, they have a bit more imagination than I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but there are people who explore that. One thing about it, with the Network of Biblical Storytellers, uh, again, where we come together annually for the festival gathering, you have tellers who tell in a variety of ways. You may have tellers who tell in the first, tell the first person, the monologue, the first person monologue, may tell Mary's story or may tell Ruth's story as a first person. So they have taken some liberties into going into the story, it, I, I guess the way in which Jewish people, the Jewish midrash is is told, where they go behind the story or within the story to bring those parts out. I don't necessarily do that. Um, I tell some stories. For example, one of the stories I, I'm not telling it to, to this evening, but one of the stories that I tell is uh, the, the lost son, the story of the lost son from Luke 15. Well, I created a parallel story to that. That's about Sammy Sheep. And it's about he, he his mama is his mama is you baby. His daddy is Rambo and his little sister is Lamb Chops. And he's lived in this this in this in his uh, sheepfold for all his life. Well, what I tell is I parallel it in that when Sammy Sheep gets to a certain age, he decides he wants to to leave his sheepfold. He wants to graze where he wants to graze. He don't want to follow the shepherd anymore. And so again, I, I, I do that, but I do it as a separate story, not within the story, uh, the biblical story that I'm telling. So, okay, well, that was wonderful. So let's <laughs> let's let's hear story two. The story two is really, in terms of theme, it is a continuation of the of story one. And uh, uh, along those same lines of being rescued from those times of um, difficulty or doubt or despair. Now, uh, I mentioned earlier as we were having conversations, some side conversation, that I I really, uh, I like the story of the feeding of 5,000. And when, when Jesus had done this miraculous feeding on that Galilean hillside or after it, after he'd done that feeding and the disciples gathered up all of those leftover pieces of bread and fish, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed the crowd, Jesus went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time, 
the boat was a considerable distance from the shore, about three and a half miles across or about halfway across the lake, being tossed by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night or about 3 a.m. in the morning, Jesus went out to the disciples walking on the lake. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and shouted out in fear. Immediately, Jesus said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. If it is you, Lord, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and made his way toward Jesus. And he saw the wind. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you of little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt? After they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And those who were in the boat said to Jesus, Truly, you are the Son of God. There's another verse to that song I began with that goes like this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus just now. Just now, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, just now, and he will save you, he will save you, he will save you, just now, just now, he will save you. He will save you just now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, like Donna Marie, you sing. Uh, How often do you uh, do that? No, not like Donna Marie. Donna Marie really <laughs> sings. <laughs> I, the only time I sing is in the story. <laughs> right, it, right. But, as an accompaniment to the story. And how often do you do that, though? How often is, is I I do it. Uh, I do it as often as I can. One is when I actually have an audience. It is an invitation to the audience to join with me. Oh, okay. And in my storytelling, as often as I can, I look for opportunities to invite the, sto- the it, teller. I mean, the audience into the story. Uh, for example, that story, the first story that I told, uh, the Daniel 3 story, uh, there is a refrain in there. And I do look for a refrain, or if it's not one in it now, I may kind of 
work out uh, out of refrain, but if the, the line is repeated in the Daniel 3 story that says, had set up, because King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. He'd set this up, and it, that, that's just said throughout. So when I'm telling that before an audience, then I invite the audience to say that part with me. I say one thing, one, one of the things that I, one of the reasons I love biblical storytelling is because for so many people, that those stories of the Bible are distant. They're from the land of long ago and far away. And what storytelling does, I think, is make that story more accessible and allows the, the listener or, or the, the viewer to feel themselves or to experience the story and not hear it as an experience outside of themselves. And so the refrain or the song or whatever I can do that invites them into the telling of the story, I try to add that to the story. And uh, just so they're in it with me. And I love it when I have told the story and afterwards someone says, I, I was, I felt that, or I saw that as you were telling it. And, um, and that's oftentimes our little kind of, where we go after the telling of the story is to hear some of the ways in which people have experienced the story by hearing it told versus hearing it read. I happen to attend a church. I'm a, I attend an Episcopal church now. And uh, what I say, I have become this Baptist Apalian. And we read an awful lot of scripture during the service, at least four passages of scripture are read each week, but it's always amazing when those pass some of those very passages are told and people will come up and say, oh, I like that version or where'd you get that version or whatever the question is, because as much as it's been read to them, they have not really heard it in that way before. Well, that's why I like this art form, as I agree yes. with you that that it puts people in the context of the experience yes. and, and, it, and it makes the experience much more alive yes. uh, and, and works its own, you know, the spirit works its own yes. way yes. Uh, into those moments. Yes. Uh, so now um, how much then do you use uh, this as a part of your ministry at the church, you know, and, and how much, cause I know, uh, you're not just a biblical storyteller, but a storyteller in general, right? That yes. you do children's stories yes. and those kind of things. Um, so like how much, how much of the storytelling is a part of the work that you do mm -hmm. uh, as a religious educator? Well, I, I do it as often as I can. And I've kind of, my, my um, priest has kind of gotten sold on the idea. So periodically there are different seasons of the year when I will get a group of tellers together, and which is which is a challenge in and of itself to get a group of adults to come together and commit to to learning scripture by heart. And we do use that. And I finally, when I when I was introduced to biblical storytelling, I came to understand what learning it by heart was, even though I had to do an awful lot of recitation 
growing up in the Baptist church, and they would always say, you're going to have to learn it by heart. But what we were actually doing was learning by head, memorizing it, getting through the speech, and then not remembering a word of what was said five minutes later. (laughs) I remember that. (laughs) (laughs) But learning by heart, meaning, meaning going through the process of really internalizing the scripture, making personal life connections to it, committing the words to, yes, memory, but committing them to the heart going deeper with it. So we get a group together. We do it during um, Holy Week. We get a group together that does a night of, in fact, we do it on Monday, Thursday. And we do, it could be uh, the passages of Holy, the Holy Week readings for that week, or it could be a thematic uh, topic that we go by, but we'll have these individual parts where people tell scripture before the audience. We've done it. We do it for Pentecost. Uh, Since we've been doing virtual church, then we have uh, on one occasion, and we're about to do it again, where I get a group of youth tellers, as in teenagers, uh, to either read aloud or tell it sometimes. But when we read aloud, it's not just that that kind of rote reading that we often hear from the lectionary but it is an actual having spent some time with it and being able to read it, even telling it through the reading of the word. So we do it in that way. And of course we do storytelling time during vacation Bible school. So there are quite a few opportunities that we have for telling stories and for giving others, inviting others into the experience of learning and telling. Well, how much um, do you use, um, costume or props because i noticed drew when i interviewed with drew of course again my audience couldn't see it but when i watched his his youtube videos uh-huh. uh to kind of get in his zone and to, and to form his atmosphere uh-huh. uh he he dons uh uh you know a, uh, not a, a costume of the of what mm-hmm. he's telling but still uh, he dons a garment uh-huh. uh, do you do that I very, very rarely use a costume. I and, and storytellers use all of these. These they have all these tools available to them. But I and, and it was a notion that I got from a storyteller I learned about early on in my storytelling work, and that was Jackie Torrance, who was also a North Carolina storyteller, but who passed away some years ago. And she was probably the first really well-known storyteller that I heard perform. And I was mesmerized by her ability to use her facial expressions, her voice, and her hands to tell the story and to be able to do that to an audience of a thousand people. And that was, as I said, that was an early experience for me. So in my work, those are the tools that I have used most often in in trying to communicate that story outside of myself. I feel I have tried the, the, the costume and I feel so awkward in them and I'm always scared I'm going to trip over something. And so they almost get in the way of my telling it. And there are other storytellers who, who, who are much more adept at using those tools in the telling of their stories. I just haven't quite mastered. <laughs> well, and you got to go to uh, got to go to Africa. 
Yes, and, yes. And in a storytelling related mission. It was a it was a storytelling mission trip uh, sponsored by the Network of Biblical Storytellers. Actually, my Episcopal diocese here in Texas uh, sponsored me and, and my husband as part of that group, and um, it was really a fascinating experience because of those people who uh, who we considered, I guess. Native storytellers, people where storytelling is very much a part of their cultural history and background. We were going on this mission trip to West Africa to help people who are in the church, but in the church, recognize the power of storytelling because it, it, you would think that it would be a natural thing for them to do the storytelling, but as they have been colonized, and have, have been brought into the church by their colonizers, they have become so formal in their worship that they don't do what comes natural to them. So it was sort of like going there and unlocking story, this, this world to them that they could actually tell scripture uh, and not be bound by the book. Or the tradition of worship as they have grown so accustomed to, if that makes sense. Well, but, and, and, and when that happened, what, 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 how did they do? What did that, they do? This, this, this experience, I think of, to, in fact, I, I, I did something with it a little earlier this year, but um, the people we went to, as I said, as you mentioned, we went to West, we went to uh, the Gambia in West Africa. And one of the language, although English is considered the, uh, the, the language of the people, <laughs> that's not necessarily the native, their native language. It's the official language of the country, but it's not necessarily the native tongue to those who speak. They speak Wolof and they speak, um, there, there are a couple of other languages that they speak, but Wolof is one that stands out. And we were doing uh, what's what we call in the network, um, uh, oh gosh, like epic tell, doing an epic telling. That's where you have a whole host of storytellers. You'll take a, a, a passage of scripture and you'll have a whole host of storytellers each coming up uh, on stage to tell a portion of that scripture. And we were telling stories from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And there were English-speaking tellers, and then there were uh, tellers who were speaking in Wolof, and, and maybe, there may have been another language, but I, I know there were Wolof speakers. And uh, the people in the audience, when the, Wolof, the person was speaking in Wolof and, and, and telling the story, people in the audience started laughing. And, and I was busy trying to figure out, well, what part of Matthew is it's funny like that? And what we later learned is that these people had never heard scripture spoken in their native tongue. Wow. And they were wow. laughing out of excitement wow. for hearing the word of God spoken in their language, as I like to say, in the language of their understanding. Mm. And I came back and I told my priest at that time about that experience. He said it was as if they were having their own Pentecost. Wow. But it was as though this word had come to them in a way that they had never experienced it. 
So it wasn't a laughing because it's funny, but it was a, a joyful laugh, laughter, saying that this word is also here for us. Well, that and that that makes me uh, because you talked about uh, almost in a way a decolonizing because uh, mm -hmm. the the English language being the colonial language yes, that yes. that was uh, and and the the missionary uh, yes. experience uh, shaped them into yes. uh, taking away their voice uh, yes. relating to story. Yes. Um, how about back here? Uh, how much of your story uh, telling do you use in relation to uh, racial healing, uh, mm. racial reconciliation? Uh, uh, interesting, interesting that you would ask me that. I, in terms of my vocal telling, I haven't done a whole lot with that. However, this year, since February of this year, I have been, for my Episcopal Diocese here in Texas, I was asked just before, just before we went down, was shut, everything shut down because of the pandemic, uh, our, our diocese here is doing some, I like the term you used earlier, you use racial healing. It is doing some racial healing work. I really like that. I'm going to Gonna pass well, that term off. I, I learned that from Meta Commerce, so I gotta, well, I gotta thank, be... thank you, Meta, for that. But I think it's it's a certainly a more accurate term because that's what it strives to do is do some healing. But I was asked uh, because of my storytelling work to find stories of the experiences of African Americans in the diocese, in the Episcopal Diocese of Texas. And I wasn't given any more guidance than that, other than write us some stories. Every every other week, every two weeks, write us a story. <laughs> so it was up to my imagination as to what stories I would tell. But again, it was part of getting the stories out there so that people who are not African-American can know of the experiences that we as a people have, have, have lived through or our ancestors have lived through just to come to worship and be a part of this church experience or the church life. And uh, it's been a fascinating journey. However, it has been a really challenging, you know, we have this old expression like pulling teeth because right. as I said, I was asked just before everything closed down for the pandemic. So all these ideas that I had about how I was going to collect this information for these stories, got put on hold, and it's oh, still wow. to a great degree on hold because the, uh, the National Archives of the Episcopal Church closed down. Even the diocesan office here closed down. <laughs> I have to, and I have really just had to dig wherever I could to find stories. I did have one tool in place, so that has been the largest way. Now, I do envision I envision that at some point, some of these stories will be told uh, uh, orally. And in fact, there is an event that I have been invited to be a part of in January 2021 to share some of these stories. But it has been fascinating to go back to actually when this diocese started, um, the, and the first bishop of this diocese was a slave owner. 
He came here from South Carolina, brought his slaves with him, had a plantation here. The first Episcopal church in this diocese, slaves helped to build it. So digging and getting into those stories and, and, and just watching what has happened throughout the course of time in terms of how the church itself responded to different events in history, um, because African-American, the, the Episcopal Church was really the first church that was established here in the States, I believe, as they, it was the Anglican Church that came here. And so uh, it's, there are a wealth of stories to be uncovered and discovered and shared. So that's really the role that storytelling has played thus far um, for me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we have time for just one more, if you're willing. Ooh. Oh, another story? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to that great city of Nineveh and cry out against it, because their evil has come before me. Instead, Jonah set up for Tarshish to flee from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship that was about to sail to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that it threatened to break the ship apart. All of the sailors were frightened, and each one began to cry out to his own God. Then they began throwing cargo overboard to, to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone below deck and was in the hold of the ship where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The ship's captain came in to Jonah and said, How is it that you're sleeping so soundly? Get up! Cry out to your God. Maybe he'll take note of us so that we will not perish. Now the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots to see who is to blame for this evil that is happening to us. So, they cast lots. And, yep, the lot fell on Jonah. So the man then said to Jonah, <laughs> What is it? What is it that, that you have done? Tell us why this evil is coming upon us. Who are you? What do you do? Where have you come from? What's your country? Who are your people? And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And they were even more frightened. And they said to Jonah, what have you done? They knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he'd already told them that. Then they asked him, tell us, what can we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Because now the sea was growing more and more tumultuous. And Jonah said to them, pick me up. 
and throw me into the sea. And the sea will grow calm. Because I know that it is because of me that this storm has come upon you. But instead, the, the men rowed hard trying to get the ship back to dry land, but they couldn't. Because the storm grew stormier and stormier against them. Then finally they cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, please hear our prayer. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, has, have done as it pleased you. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased its raging. And men were terrified. And, and they, they made a sacrifice. They made vows. The Lord sent a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you just now. Just now. He will save you, he will save you, I can listen to you all day long. <laughs> thank you, David. Well, thank you. Uh, you have been most gracious and generous with your time, and uh, this has been a blessing. Thank uh, you. So thank you for being with me tonight. All right. Uh, and Pleased I, to meet you. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, I uh, hope your work continues to go well Thank you. Uh, in what you do. Thank you. You've been listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel dot b l u b r r y dot net to subscribe and hopefully to donate your participation will help me continue this effort thank you for listening and for your support blessings may the words from my mouth speak your peace.